You're listening to the Color Country Podcast, your passport to the breathtaking public lands and tourism destinations nestled in southern Utah and northern Arizona. Join host Stephanie DeGraw and her guests. Hi, and welcome to the Color Country Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. And today, I'm going to have my guest introduce herself. Hi, Stephanie. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, my name is Kaya Marienfeld, and I am a wildlands attorney for the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. Um, and I live over in Moab, so just on the other part of the southern half of the state. And in our podcast, as you know, we talk about issues of public lands all over Utah and northern Arizona. And we're glad you could join us today to talk about this national monument. And can you kind of um, give us an overview of why you guys are involved as a group to be active on the issues that affect managing this. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to, you know, I think, well, first of all, you know, Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance or SUA uh, for short, uh, we just had our 40th anniversary this last year. So we have been around for 40 years since 1983 um, advocating for protection of federal public lands in the state of Utah. Um, So these are all lands managed by the Bureau of Land Management. And that would include Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, which was actually the first national monument um, designated on BLM land that was left in the care of the BLM after designation. Uh, prior to Grand Staircase being designated in 1996, most of the time the Antiquities Act was used to designate a monument on federal lands. Uh, management was given over to another entity, whether it was the National Park Service, eventually became a national park, something like that. Um, so when you hear of Grand Staircase being referred to as the jewel of uh, national conservation lands for the BLM, that's why. Um, it, was, it was the first. It's definitely one of the more groundbreaking, I think. And we, uh, every year, sort of SUA's bottom line is helping advocate for wilderness protection of qualifying wilderness quality federal public lands um, within the state of Utah. And a lot of those occur within Grand Staircase. So our wilderness bill that is introduced every year in Congress um, by our co-sponsors from all over the United States in both the House and the Senate um, includes a significant portion of Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument for proposal to designate some as wilderness. Um, And so a lot of what we do on the day-to-day is just make sure that those places that qualify as wilderness now um, still qualify as wilderness, you know, when Congress gets around to designating them down the road. So that's why why we work on Grand Staircase. Um, We have since, certainly since its initial designation in 1996, um, since long before that as well. Let's talk about the recent resource management plan that the Bureau of Land Management is working on. Uh, In my other episode, I spoke with some of the folks over in Garfield County, and they had some concerns. And so I wanted to um, bring those up so we could also have both sides of the story of the concerns for the management plan. And so some of their concerns center around they think that there has not been enough public input for the plan and that the plan fails to identify specific protected objects so do you feel there's been enough public input for the blm on this plan the short answer yes (laughs) definitely i think you know i've been really honestly impressed i think the agency uh the bureau of land management um you know under the department of interior has done 
a really good job um, with this management plan, knowing that there is a significant portion of the public, both nationally and locally, who are interested in the management of these um, of this monument. And having uh, public meetings uh, in locations, physical public meetings, um, and then also I think there were three virtual uh, public meetings that they held. I can't remember the specific number, but there were also meetings in Kanab, Escalani, Panguitch, Salt Lake City, and I think maybe there was one in Big Water too. I can't remember this time around, but at least, you know, those major sort of gateway communities to the monument. Um, I went to two of those myself, as well as one of the virtual meetings. And so it's, you know, I appreciate, you know, that people's schedules are difficult, but at the same time, I think, what, six, six public meetings um, within a a 90 day, excuse me, 120 day comment period, I think they had for on the draft DA. It's a lot. And honestly, it's more than they had to. And I think they did a good job of responding to, um, again, both local and national interest in the issue and making that space available for people. And that was a place where members of the public or people who work for conservation groups, people who are permittees, people who own local businesses, people who have any sort of guide interest in the monuments could come talk to the land managers directly, talk to the contractors who were writing the plan. Certainly talk to monument management, um, ask questions, get information, help inform themselves about how to best engage during the public comment process. And you could even submit public comments right there if that was the easiest thing for you. So, no, I, I, I guess I would be a little confused why anyone thought that there was not enough public um, engagement on these plans. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's why I'm doing, you know, different episodes for each issue that we'll be talking about in our, yeah. in our podcast. Yeah. I appreciate that answer. And one of the um, other things, and this might be more a question for the Bureau of Land Management. So if I ask you any questions that you feel is better for them, you can let me know. But, the second part of my question was um, Garfield County leaders felt that the plan did not identify specific protective objects. Do you have any comment on that? I think that is a good question for the agency, but also, you know, again, I would, I would disagree. I think the Antiquities Act um, is broad because it does cover a huge variety of antiquities. You know, antiquities can mean you know, a specific grave of a soldier from the Civil War could be something that would be a monument object that would be worthy of designation as a monument. It could also mean particular cool or unique geology. Um, It could mean important wildlife habitat. It could mean um, Native American or indigenous cultural sites, whether that's you know, uh, burial sites or historic habitation sites or um, petroglyphs, pictographs, things like that. Um, Grand Staircase encompasses almost every single one of those things that I just listed, plus 25 more. And I think that really is why it was designated in the first place, because it really is this super concentration of so many things that I think on their own would warrant special attention and warrant special protections. Um, and the Antiquities Act does not say that it has to be a certain size or that it has to be a certain thing or a certain specific object. It just is an object of 
national, historic, biological, um, geologic, you know, anthropologic, paleontologic (laughs) um, significance. Um, And it really is up to, you know, the administration, you know, using the Antiquities Act to designate a monument under it um, to kind of make that call. And I certainly think that, you know, if you've read all of the presidential proclamations designating and redesignating Grand Staircase, I think it's a whole host of things. And I think um, maybe that feels unusual because you think of a monument object as a specific concrete you can point right to and think. But that's really not what the law says. And so I don't think it's outside, certainly, the scope of the president's ability to designate a monument for any of those reasons. And I do think the proclamations really um, list with pretty intense specificity um, what some of those things are within Grand Staircase. You know, in our, in our comments as a conservation organization on the monument plan this time and the last time and the time before, you know, we, we are able to, and we do specifically address how things that they're looking at, the different alternatives, either protect or don't protect or need to be tweaked this much to protect these specific objects. And we highlight specific objects. So I, I don't think it's outside, hopefully, the realm of, of the rest of the public to be able to identify those things, either when things like the Old Spanish Trail, when things like Dance Hall Rock, when um, specific cultural sites, um, habitat for uh, a threatened or endangered plant species, old growth pinyon juniper forest, all of those things are monument objects in the proclamations. And I think all of those things are, are concretely identifiable um, in a way that make it you know, specific enough to manage it. You know, they they had for 20 plus years prior to uh, President Trump uh, scaling back the management of Grand Staircase. And I think it, you know, I think 20 years of evidence of a monument management plan that was finalized in 2000, I think. Um, and then the monument was managed under that successfully, I think, for for two decades prior to the Trump administration. So, yeah, I think there's definitely, <laughs> definitely specific objects um, worth worth managing and worth worth designation. Thank you, and I think too, um, I want to boil it down to then um, some of the concerns locally that they have. They're concerned about proposed transportation restrictions this time around, um, including some road closures that would limit access to important areas that they feel would um, negatively affect Garfield County. And I wondered if you could comment on that. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, you know, here's, here's the thing. Uh, when, when a monument is designated, it, those lands for better or worse, you know, according to who you're talking to, um, I would certainly say for the better and for good reason, aren't general multiple use lands within the public land general management framework anymore. And that means that according to the law, according to Congress, um, they have to be managed to protect those objects that the proclamation lists. And sometimes that involves changing things from how existing management was prior to that monument being designated. Um, That is always going to be difficult for some folks. It's always going to be great for others. I think the 
the underlying hope is that it's best for the landscape and best for the reasons that it was designated in the first place. Um, and not just best for it now, but best for it far into the future. You know, sometimes to say, look, we're enjoying these things now. We enjoyed them. My grandfather enjoyed them. My great grandfather enjoyed them. We might be at a point where we need to do things differently to make sure that your great great grandchildren can also enjoy the same things. And I think that's, you know, that's sort of the catch 22 of public lands management is it is a public resource. And that means that, you know, you hear of the tragedy of the commons all the time. And it really is a, a classic example of that, where you have something that everybody wants to experience, everybody wants to enjoy, but by nature of everybody wanting to enjoy it and experience it in their own way, you risk losing that whole reason that you're there in the first place. And so these management plans really have to walk a really delicate balance, frankly, of um, having the resource be there and available to the public, but also to meet the other standards that they have to, like protecting wildlife species that are in peril, protecting habitat. Um, there's a lot of criteria, the National, National Historic Preservation Act that, you know, the, the BLM and Congress have to make sure that they're protect, protecting those objects of antiquity, those um, uh, ancestral landscapes, those ancestral sites, um, and historic sites too. You know, there are Mormon pioneer important historic objects that are on Grand Staircase that are in the proclamations as well. And that does come with management that sometimes means it's limiting certain activities, um, whether it's a, a time and place restriction, which I think is really what's being contemplated. I don't think there's really any anything that is outright prohibited um, across the monument in general. So I think characterizing it that way is a little disingenuous. Um, but this idea that you can do absolutely anything, absolutely anywhere in any manner that you want, just frankly doesn't work trying to make sure that the resource is there long-term. Um, and having that monument status places, I think, a little bit of a stronger um, uh, emphasis on protecting those objects than it would be otherwise where the agency would say, okay, we've got these public lands, we can make it, you know, an open OHV play area, or we can protect this cactus species that occurs here and might, might suffer when people drive near it or there's dust created. Okay, in this area, we're going to protect the cactus. And in this area, you get to have your open area. When something is made a monument, that that management takes precedence and that sort of makes that decision for the BLM. And so it's saying, look, there are some things that we're going to have to do differently because this is a monument versus if it weren't, um, which is I mean, that is why President Trump uh, downsized Grand Staircase um, and Bears Ears in the first place, I think, because they they realize that the, the best way to not have that sort of conservation first criteria apply was to make them back into multiple use sort of general public lands. Transportation is a huge uh, management concern. It's a huge management issue. You know, there are decades and decades and decades of studies that, that show that increased motorized use or being within half a mile of a road or a mile of a road substantially changes the nature of the landscape compared to areas that aren't as roaded um, or as areas where you don't have motorized um, direct access per se. But again, we've had a we've had a transportation management plan that was finalized, you know, 20 years ago now that's been in place for the last 20 years that I think has worked really well to create a balance between allowing people to 
use their motor vehicles to get to locations, but also protecting these massive swaths of the landscape from concerns that come with motorized use. And has honestly been the main thing that's protected some of those really, really remarkable backcountry areas. Um, You know, not so people can backpack them, not so people can river raft or do other things, but honestly, just so there can be places that don't really have that kind of influence on them at all. And I think that's a false binary that we hear a lot when it comes to looking at motorized travel. It's that, oh, you know, the hikers and the backpackers, they just want to protect it for themselves and they don't want to share with anybody. I can speak for myself, you know, and, and, and to his perspective, that's, that's not what it's about. It's just saying that there are some places that need a break sometimes, um, from people, they need a break from, from noise, from dust, from light, from sound. Um, and then that's really important whether or not I personally, as a human, whether I'm hiking or backpacking or whatever, will ever, ever go there. Um, I think they, they just need to exist and, you know, wildlife, Studies show us that as well. Grand Staircase is right smack in the middle of an incredibly important wildlife migration corridor that runs all the way up to the Canadian border um, through Yellowstone, down through the Rockies, over to Grand Staircase, down onto the Colorado Plateau, Grand Canyon, um, the Kaibab, and all the way down to Mexico. And it really, you know, there were scientific studies that were done, gosh, almost four years ago now that show that it has some of the highest quality remaining um habitat uh for a lot of these species and also that it's the most resilient to the pressures of climate change because of the species that occur there they're well adapted for hot for dry for really extreme variation in temperature and climate and so it's it's incredibly important for all those reasons and you know and like it or not uh motorized vehicles being everywhere all the time um is something that that does jeopardize that so I don't think that the agency considering transfer, motorized transportation management is something that um, is outside of the scope of the management plan at all. Um, it happens with every management plan. They're trying to sort of set a framework to say, hey, when our management plan is finalized, we then have to do our travel plan, which is what's going to be the thing that makes those sort of nitty gritty route specific decisions. But they're trying to sort of let folks know that, like, this is the direction that we're headed in now. This is kind of how you can expect things to go. And this is why we're doing doing these things and considering these alternatives. Um, Something I have seen definitely, you know, out there online or on Facebook, um, certainly from some communications from from Garfield County is is showing one of the alternatives, um, a map from one of the proposed alternatives in the draft plan. As, as sort of a tool to get folks really riled up about really extreme restrictions on motorized travel within Grand Staircase. Um, I think that's unfortunate. One, because that map that they're showing is not even from the agency's preferred alternative. It's from alternative D, which I would call the sort of the far side of the options in one way, where alternative A is the far side of options another way. Alternative C is what the agency has said is their preferred alternative, which they're legally required to identify um, so that the public kind of knows, here's kind of all of our options, that this is sort of what we're thinking now. And it really helps you engage um, the best so you don't sort of focus on something that's not likely to happen. But I think it's weird to see the county and to see some folks focusing on that thing that's not likely to happen, that the agency is really just required to 
say, and here's, here's one way it can go. And we're going to think about all of it. We're going to look at all of it. So it's, I mean, it's certainly effective in getting people really freaked out about it, if that's the goal, um, which I think to some extent it is. But, you know, I think a more realistic direction is really what Alternative C is kind of showing on the map. Um, And then again, there's going to be a a travel plan process, which will actually make those route-specific decisions. And I think it's fair to say, you know, there, there is a significant amount of illegal motorized travel that's happened in the last 20 years. The, the monument has done a good job, you know, managing according to the current travel plan that exists now that's been in place. But it's also been really difficult to try to prevent and then reclaim some illegal motorized travel that is outside of what those, those current designated routes are. This is particularly true, I would say, on Hole in the Rock Road coming out of Escalani, um, just because you have tons of people who are looking for campsites. And so there are a lot of roads that are administrative routes only, which basically means that like the grazing permittee um, is allowed to use them to get to their line shack or their, uh, you know, cattle fenced area or their stock tanks. Um, But they're not open to general travel from the public. But all that's there sometimes is a sign that says that. If you're a tourist who's visiting in your rental car, you don't necessarily know that. And I do think the agency can and should do a much better job of sort of indicating where public travel is allowed and encouraged, um, because I think a lot of that pressure for dispersed camping um, is happening a lot along some of those routes. So, you know, from our perspective, we would like to see the agency after the plan is finished actually work to renaturalize some of those illegal motorized routes because when a route wasn't inventoried and wasn't specifically designated in a travel plan it didn't go through the same processes basically to make sure that that was an okay place to put a motorized route so it could very well go straight through a cultural site because it was never cleared um you know doing class one or class two uh cultural resources surveys which the blm is required to do before designating any motorized routes they basically have to say okay, this is not, you know, going over a lithic site or potsherds or um, some sort of important cache or things like that, or it's not going through, you know, an endangered plant species community. Um, They basically, that's why they do travel planning. Um, And so some of those illegal routes like very well are, are not in the best place, whether there need to be new ones to access thing, you know, is something that they would, would look into in that travel plan process. But I don't think that, you know, we need to, you know, I certainly, as someone who is down in the monument a lot, uh, both for work and for just personal time, um, it's one of my favorite places in the world. There are so many incredible places that you can get to right now with a motorized vehicle on, on open designated routes. I don't think we need more. <laughs> Um, and I think, again, there are other priorities. I think that should, should probably win out um, if it comes down to that. But I think there's so many ways you can get around the monument. There's so many amazing things to see that people will never even scratch the surface of if you just stay on, on frankly, on maintained routes. You know, there's hundreds of thousands of miles of places to see from, from a vehicle or near a vehicle. Um, so I don't think, you know, there's... A, hopefully not a real concern at the end of the day about that being an issue. And that kind of ties into um, the next thing I want to talk about, which is 
I think some of the Garfield livestock producers are concerned that some of their access to their um, grazing and maintaining operations might get restricted if this transportation restriction extreme option is followed. And as you've said, the BLM may not go to that extreme. So do you think the livestock folks will still have as much access as they had before? I think that's really hard to say. I, you know, if you have a valid existing right on the monument, if you have an existing uh, permit, if you're an existing livestock uh, grazing permittee, you, you have access to where you need to access um, to maintain your permit. Um, so I, I don't know if that's a genuine concern or if it's maybe being used because I don't think the general public understands that idea, again, of like administrative access that like there are things, it's very, very, it's incredibly common um, in the state of Utah on both BLM lands and Forest Service lands for permittees to have a road that is gated, um, that the public cannot get up, but that if somebody needs to go, um, you know, fix some fencing on their allotment, they can do that. Um, they have they have the right to do that. That's um, a good example. I don't know if that's, kind of that's yeah, if that's a disconnect. Yeah, people are understanding. Exactly. Um, and then the other concern they yeah. had was the proposed plan restricts wood gathering, which is important for some of the folks that live out there. They're saying that they rely on wood to heat their homes and whatnot, and they're concerned that that's going to be restricted quite a bit. Um, perhaps that is the option that you were talking about, but it is definitely a concern for them. Yeah, I think I think it's the same thing. I think you have that sort of, you know, alternative A in one corner, alternative D in the other corner. And I, I feel like we're talking about alternative D, which is the the opposite of A, which is like, it's a free for all and you can do whatever anywhere. And A, frankly, would violate the Antiquities Act. <laughs> um, it, that that plan in in, you know, in isolation does not protect monument objects the BLM would fail, I think, that that statutory duty. Alternative D certainly does, but it really, uh, again, it's that other far side of things where it's like, maybe this isn't the thing that really is the, the biggest priority as far as protecting monument objects. You know, what kind of pressures are there from, from wood gathering at the end of the day? Are we really seeing tons and tons of off-route trampling, hiking, driving, things like that, where people are wood gathering, you know, biological soil crust is a named monument object. Um, and that's, that's a huge, incredible, important resource, um, certainly across the whole Colorado plateau, but definitely on Grand Staircase. And I think that's a concern you're trampling around in the woods, you know, wood gathering or you're um, cutting, I can't remember if that if wood gathering, as BLM defines it allows cutting or if it's just gathering already downed wood? As I recall, that was wood that was already on the ground. Okay. Yeah. I mean, whether it's, you know, wood already on the ground or, or cutting down trees um, within the forested parts uh, of the monument, I think either way, the, the restrictions that are being contemplated in any of the alternatives 
are restrictions that are based on specific criteria of the areas where you would have those restrictions in place. Um, you know, looking at the map for both alternative D, which is that sort of far-flung alternative that I think folks look at and they stress about it, um, or C, which is the BLM's preferred alternative, it very much makes good sense that you cannot go gather wood in a research natural area that is being protected uh, for old growth forest. <laughs> you know, it's things like that. Or within a wilderness study area, there's a huge percentage of Grand Staircase that is wilderness study area, which are required to be managed basically as if it were wilderness already. And you are not allowed to do those things in WSAs just period. And so I think if you really look at the map and you really break it down, the areas that you would be allowed to wood gather and the areas that you wouldn't, it, it just makes sense based on what's on the ground. You know, you can gather wood around dispersed campsites. You can gather wood close to gateway communities. You can gather wood in areas that don't have some sort of sensitive plant species or don't have, you know, wildlife breeding concerns, things like that. I think, I do think the agency did a really good job in their mapping. Maybe it's just me because I, I, I know the specific designations on the map so well, and I can look at it and go, oh, that's a research natural area. Oh, that's a wilderness study area or, oh, that's wilderness characteristics that they're protecting. Um, and the general public isn't that familiar with it. So maybe it looks kind of weird, but when I look at those maps, it's like, oh, that's, that's, absolutely why that area you can and that area you can't. And I think, you know, looking at, I'm trying to see in the preferred alternative, you can wood gather still on 88,000 acres across That's a lot of wood gathering. Um, <laughs> and then it just, yeah, it's a lot of, it's a lot of wood gathering. And I do think it looking at the map, I think it encompasses the areas where people would already be going to do that. If you're wood gathering to heat your house, you're not like way up on Scutumpah on Timber Mountain up there in the middle of kind of all of that, yeah, potentially. Or you're not out on the way out on the Kaparowitz on, you know, the Smoky Mountain Road, super, super far flung past Escalani um, to gather wood. Maybe you are, but again, that, that idea that, you know, we, we can't do everything everywhere. Um, this does still allow for wood gathering, but it just, I think, places some really sensible uh, parameters on it to help protect the landscape while still sort of maintaining that that traditional use that people have used it for. And that's a and that's a cultural, you know, issue, too. That is something that, um, you know, over in Bears Ears, it's a much bigger concern because you do have a, a higher concentration of. Uh, tribal communities that go and then use that landscape for those traditional activities, including wood gathering. So I think it's it's definitely something the agency thought about in that context too. I think is clear if you well, and I appreciate it. your explanation because I think as the general public, we forget sometimes that there are designated places within a monument that you can do certain things. Just because they're going to limit it in one area doesn't mean the whole area is off limits. And so I think um, Yeah. Well exactly. And that I think wood gathering is a is a really good example actually because I mean think about it, you can go get your you get your permit to go cut a Christmas tree 
you know, up in the forest by me, up in the LaSalle's and the Manti LaSalle National Forest, they tell you where you can and can't go cut your Christmas tree every year. They say this area is where you're allowed to go this year based on what we're seeing on the landscape. You know, this area burned down in a fire or it's having a lot of issues or this area has got a lot of beetle kill trees. We would love you to go in and cut your tree there because we can help thin it. You know, I, it's, it's just land management, I think, generally. Yes, so. And I think that um, the fact that it's a public land that all different types of people should be able to use it, whether it's the local folks or people that come just to visit. And I think, is there anything you want to say about the impact on the local economy and communities as far as the land management that's been going on at Grand Staircase and that they're considering? Do you think it's really going to harm their economies or are they doing um, realistic management. Yeah, that's a you know that's a good question. I think, I think you know just bringing up that this these are these are public lands. These are federal public lands. They have been federal public lands for a very very long time, um, well before it was a monument. And I think it is maybe just I think maybe odd <laughs> to hear uh, you know whether it's local elected officials at the county level or from the state, the state of Utah as well, you get the perspective sometimes that those officials or the county or the state believe that these lands belong to them. And I think if that's your starting place, nothing I'm going to say or explain is going to hit home. You know, I think it's frustrating because, you know, these really are public lands that are there for the benefit of all Americans. And what that really means and this is hard for me too, right? I live in Moab. We have a lot of the same kind of issues, the same kind of pressures scaled up tremendously where we feel very protective and we feel like this is, you know, this is mine. This is my backyard. This is the place that that is important to me. No one else can possibly ever understand it. And it's like, I understand how you feel that way. But at the same time, there's, there's no real debate about the fact that like these belong just as much to a Garfield County commissioner as they do to me over in Moab, as they do to you, as they do to John Smith up in Massachusetts or, you know, Sally down in Florida. These, <laughs> these are all of us just the same. And so I think anything that I think attempts to paint it differently, it's, it's just not true. And that's just not how, that's just not how that works. You know, um, and I think it's interesting that when you're talking about impact to local economies, that argument, when you hear that as a reason to not, for the monument to not have been designated in the first place, or for, um, for different management protections that are, are pretty loose, that, that really don't actually protect the reason the monument was designated, man, that rings hollow. <laughs> I think just looking at the like basic, basic facts. Um, which really are that like, you know, I think the same folks that were saying the sky was falling in 1996 when this was first designated by President Clinton are, are despite, again, two decades plus of evidence to the contrary, still saying that. And it's really weird to look at economic data, to look at the, the boom, frankly, in local businesses, to see the fact that, you know, the towns of Boulder and Escalante and Kanab big water now kind of coming up in a weird way. It's fascinating to watch. Um, but that, 
it would be a completely different place in those towns, um, I think, without the monument there. And I think there are, I would wager, a majority of local businesses that that really understand the the new economic driver that the monument's designation brought to the communities. Something that I am not saying tourism does not have its issues. It does. You know, again, I live in Moab. We struggle with that all the time. But it is something that is, if you do it right, a much more sustainable, long-term kind of revitalization um, of an area rather than some sort of like extraction, for example, where it's kind of like, uh, you know, we're there, it's a boom, it's great, and then it's tapped and we're done. And then the whole economic sector is gone, Um, which is what a lot of these towns went through prior to the monument being designated, actually. So it's interesting to see this sort of economic um, resurgence and this new economic driver coming to these towns, which really has benefited. You know, I think I um, sent you that Headwaters economic study about communities near national monuments and, and looking at some of the data and looking at how how much better uh, economically communities are when they have that, that public land resource, um, whether it's visitation or science or, you know, agencies being there, stuff like that. I think they really are um, it, economically, I think undeniably is good for the community. It can be a big culture shift. Like I certainly understand that if you go from being a, ranching community primarily or an oil and gas town to being um guides and outfitters and restaurants and you know the service industry it's very different um and that that's a big change and i'm not i'm definitely not saying it's not a big change or that people should just be like well this is what your economy is now and you you got to deal with it that's that's not what we're saying but i think arguing that grand staircase is bad economically for the neighboring communities is just not a true statement um you know looking at the data whether it's what you want is a different story and i think that's really what it comes from i think there's that shift you know that shift was on the way ranching public lands ranching being the major economic driver in the region or across the united states in general has been something that's been on the decline long before public lands recreation sort of stepped up to take the place. But it is easy sometimes to see that as being, you know, the reason that something was, was, was in decline or something was sort of lessening or backing off instead of a million other factors, which really I think at the end of the day is what it is. Thank you. So. Yes. Um, great points. And wrapping up, our podcast, my final question is, do you think that the local communities near these monuments still have enough input um, on these issues that the Bureau of Land Management will listen to them? And is the Bureau of Land Management going to be able to make these decisions or will it end up in Washington and some political appointee makes the decisions? Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a really good question. I think Again, I think it really, it circles back to, you know, you hear that criticism as sort of fundamentally the same acts that's being ground by people that don't want the monument in the first place. um, And then fundamentally don't think that the federal government should have management of lands that they have management of in the first place. 
I see, uh, you know, I work, I work with federal agencies all the time. That's, that's my whole job is working with the BLM. It's having meetings, it's commenting, it's engaging on projects. It's, it's weighing in when we like something, it's weighing in when we don't, um, you know, it's being as a, almost like a super active member of the public is kind of how I would describe it. And then with, with the background of understanding like the legal framework that the agencies are operating under, if you work for the BLM, it is your responsibility, according to Congress and the Federal Land Policy Management Act, to manage the lands in your care in a certain way, according to certain management standards. And that doesn't mean you have to listen to Garfield County and what Garfield County wants or what Kane County wants or what Wayne County wants or whoever. It means that you need to manage them according to whatever that congressional standard is, that congressional mandate. Um, Here it's the Antiquities Act. It's the Federal Land Policy Management Act, which is the BLM sort of organic act that governs everything that they do. And then there's a whole host of other ones on top of that. It's the National Historic Preservation Act. It's the Endangered Species Act. It's, you know, all of these things that Congress has decided um, over time are worthwhile to place special emphasis on. And, uh, you know, that that means letting local communities have a seat at the table um, and and meaningfully engage and know what's going on. But it doesn't mean that local communities get more say in a way that contradicts the legal standard that the agencies as a federal land management agency managing federal lands have to meet. And I think that's an understandably hard pill to swallow for some folks. It might just not make sense. And I certainly get that. They're like, look, I can throw a rock and hit hit this place that I have gone to every day of my whole life and I'm 65 now, you know, and that my mom went to and that her dad went to and you know, you, you feel that sense of ownership. But I think, again, it really is that if decisions are made in Washington, D.C., um, which one I don't think is what's happening. I really don't. I, I have consistent conversations and ask a lot of questions. The local managers, whether it's the monument manager, the district manager, you know, these are people that are from Kanab, that are from Escalani. These are people that grew up there. These are people that, you know, um, go to church with the county commissioners. Uh, They are very, very tied into the local community. They're part of the local community, but they understand that when they put that uniform on and they put the hat on and the badge and, you know, whatever, and they're at that public meeting as a person who works for the Bureau of Land Management, that that's their job. And that means that that's the decisions that they need to make at the end of the day is to meet whatever that statutory um, responsibility is. You know, because if they don't, they're going to hear from people like me <laughs> who are like, hey, like, I appreciate that you're you're listening, you know, to the Garfield County Commission. They know a lot. Their perspective is really important. But but that doesn't mean that the Garfield County Commission is more important than than what Congress said on these particular lands. You know, Garfield County can do what Garfield County wants with their lands um, or with private lands. Uh, but Again, federal public lands, they just have, they have a different standard that they have to meet. And so I do think people should be involved. I think the communities are incredibly important. I would be the first person there saying, hey, you guys didn't involve the county. Um, you didn't let people come to the table the same way that we're starting to do that and starting to see that a lot more with tribal governments, which is something that's happening 
for the first time in a really long time, um, if ever, when you're looking at these monument plans, there are representatives from different tribal entities that are at the table, that are getting meetings, that are getting field tours that they haven't before. And that's super cool. The same way that I would advocate for, you know, somebody from from Hopi to be there, I would advocate the same for somebody from Garfield County to be there or somebody from, gosh, I don't know where else, you know, the, the, any of those entities, the local chamber of commerce, things like that. But I think that can be hard sometimes for, especially if you're living in a community where you feel like everybody thinks one way or you agree to, to see some outcome that's very different from what you and all your friends and your colleagues and the people you go to church with and the people you're at soccer practice with um, seeing, but it's not, you know, they'll tell you this all the time at those public meetings. It's like comments are not votes. You're not, you're not voting for which alternative you want the most. You're giving input, you're giving information to the agency who still has to meet certain criteria when they're making those decisions. I think regardless of what, what the loudest voice in the room is, or regardless of what sort of public clamor is. And we come up against that all the time from a conservation perspective, you know, even when local staff want to make a decision one way, if, if their legal responsibility is to choose something else, that's what they're supposed to do. Um, And so I would honestly much rather have agency staff that are consistently making decisions according to what their statutory responsibility is, um, even if that is not the decision that I would like. (laughs) So, (laughs) but because it's consistent, you know, it's expected. And I think that's, that's really, really important. And I really have been very impressed, I think, with the, with the BLM, whether it's the state office or the local offices down in Kanab and Escalani, they seem to really get that. They seem to really understand that they have a very important responsibility to the public to be fair, to be reasonable, and to do their darndest to write a management plan that at the end of the day protects what they need to protect and tries to address as many of the public's concerns as they possibly can. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't think this is some decision that's coming from on high, regardless of what anybody says. I think there's a lot of scrutiny on it. I think importantly, we've now seen this sort of football of monument undesignation and redesignation happen, um, which has drawn a huge amount of national attention. So I think it's natural to have, you know, folks at BLM, folks at Department of Interior, you know, in Washington or in Grand Junction, which is where half of the BLM headquarters are now, kind of making sure they know what's going on. Um, But I don't think that means that there's any sort of like undue pressure coming from DC other than like, Hey guys, you, you need to do a good job. This is really important. We don't want to have to do this again, you know, in two years, <laughs> we don't want to stay with that pattern. And that's not something anybody wants. Right. So thank you so much for all your excellent input and explaining some of these issues and the other side of the coin, so to speak. And I really appreciate your time today. No, no, Sorry for rambling a little bit. I feel like I was rambling. I needed you to <laughs> share your wisdom, and you did. That's, that's oh, um, thanks. <laughs> so appreciate your time today. Yeah. And thank you, everyone who's been listening. You've been listening to the Color Country Podcast with your host, Stephanie DeGraw. Have a great day. You've been listening to the Color Country Podcast. Enjoy your public lands, and remember... 
to leave no trace.